0: Me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43. And we are, uh, if you are visiting with us, or if you weren't here last week, we uh, began last week a new sermon series called "You Are Exploring Our Identity in Christ." And so uh, we looked last week at uh, the same text, Isaiah 43 verses 1 through 7, and uh, we uh, are continuing that uh, that text. We didn't cover it all last week, and so we're continuing that in the message this morning. And just a refresher, what we looked at primarily last week was the fact that this text is structured as a chiasm, which means that the focal point is at the center in verse 4, and so the central message of this text in Isaiah 43 is that you are loved, that as God's people, and in the New Testament, as God's people in Christ, we are loved by God. And so... If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. And here's where the focal point, the center point, point of the text is in verse 4. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You may be seated. Victor Hugo once said, the supreme happiness of life consists in the conviction that one is loved. And if that is true, then we have all... Should be supremely happy, because God says to us through these words of Isaiah, "You are loved." And as we saw last week, that is the central message of this text, and that is who we are in Christ—that we are loved by God. And when you read this this whole text, these verses through the, the lens of God's love, we see, as I mentioned last week, four specific facets of God's love in these verses. And we looked at the first one last week, which is that God loves us with an undeserved love. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, we're going to look at the remaining three facets of God's love in these verses. And the first one is that God loves us with an elective love. So God says to his people in verse 1, I have called you by name, you are mine. And then again, because remember these are parallel sections in this text, so we go back back down to verse 7, which is the parallel statement. God says again, he refers to his people as everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Well, this is the language of election. In fact, in Hebrew, that expression called by my name has the sense of being chosen. And remember, out of all the people in the world, how God chose Abraham to be the man through whom he would build a people for himself and a nation for himself. And out of all the nations, God chose Israel to be the special object of his affection and the channel through which his redemptive plan would unfold. And of course, what God says here through the prophet Isaiah is an echo of what Moses said to the people of God back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you remember that scene as Moses was preparing the people to enter into the promised land, he reminded them who they really were. He reminded them about their identity as God's chosen people. And this is what he said. He said, for you are a people holy to the Lord, and holy meaning set apart, uh, set apart for the Lord, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, to be his treasured possession. And he goes on to say, in words that that, uh, remind us of what we looked at last week, he goes on to say that they were chosen not because of their inherent worth or value, but simply because because God in his sovereign grace loved them. And so he said, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. It's not because you were you know, so, so great of a people, such a great nation that God said, I'm going to choose that nation to be, I'm going to choose that people to be mine. Look how great they are. No, Moses says, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you that he brought you out with a mighty hand. God loves us with an elective love. And the prophet Ezekiel describes this elective love of, of God in even stronger terms. He says the people of Israel were like an unwanted baby, thrown out into an open field and left to die. And God came to them in their despised condition and chose to love them and draw them to himself. And so Ezekiel says of the Israelites, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. And then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your own blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. See, this is how God's people came to be loved. He chose to love them even when they had nothing within themselves that was worthy of his love. In his book, uh, Matilda Roald Dahl said, It's a funny thing about mothers and fathers, even when their own child is the most disgusting little blister you could ever imagine. They still think that he or she is wonderful. Wonderful. That's the way it is with God and his people, isn't it? He looks upon his disgusting little blister of a people, despised and kicking about in their own blood, and he says to them, I have called you by name. I've chosen you to be mine. You are precious and honored in my sight, and you are my treasured possession. God loves his people with an elective love. And this pattern of his elective love that began with Israel in the Old Testament continues into the New Testament. For the apostle Peter uses the very same language to describe who we are in Christ. And really astounding words that would have been scandalous to non-believing Jews, Peter assigns to Gentile believers the very identity of God's chosen people, using the exact same language that God used of the people, of his people under the Old Covenant Peter just applies that directly to Gentiles who are in Christ. And he says this. Again, speaking to Gentiles, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It is purely by God's gracious election that Gentiles can be described as God's chosen people and his treasured possession, a holy nation. It is only by His elective love that we've been called out of the darkness into His light. You see, apart from Christ, we were dead, we are dead in our sins, objects of God's wrath, consigned to a life of emptiness and darkness. But in Christ, we're given a new identity as the people of God. And so Peter goes on to say, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, uh, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And what changed that condition? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Do you see what a glorious truth that is? Trapped in darkness, brought into light, dead in sins, made alive with Christ, objects of wrath, made to be God's treasured possession. This is who we are in Christ. God loves us with an elective love. The second facet of God's love that we see in these verses is that he loves us with an ever-present protective love. God says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now notice what God does not say in this familiar verse. He does not say that He will spare us from trials and afflictions. In fact, He really says the opposite. He says that, that we will experience these things. He says when you pass through the waters and when you pass through the rivers and, and when you walk through the fire. As God's people, we, we will go through hardships and afflictions. Jesus said the same thing. He promised that those who follow him will endure hatred and persecution and opposition and suffering. John Calvin said, the Lord has not redeemed you so that you might enjoy pleasures and luxuries, but so that you should be prepared for enduring all kinds of evils. That's a strong statement. The Lord has redeemed you. That's good news. He's redeemed you, but he says not so that you might enjoy comfort and luxury and and have a life of ease. He has redeemed you so that you would be prepared for enduring all kinds of evils. So God does not give us, in in this verse, a, a free pass from suffering. But what he does give us is a promise of his protective presence. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And he says it again in the parallel statement in verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And his presence is a protective presence, for he says, When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, from Isaiah's perspective, let me just point this out. Uh, We see a specific illustration of this promise in Israel's past, and we see a specific fulfillment of this promise in Israel's future from Isaiah's perspective. So, in the past, the protective presence of God was with his people when he brought them up out of Egypt. And they passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and God was with them. And they passed through the rivers of the Jordan, and and the rivers did not sweep over them. In the future, again from standing in Isaiah's shoes, in Isaiah's future... The protective presence of God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the blazing furnace. And they walked through the fire, and they were not burned, and the flames did not set them ablaze. And these sort of historical events stand as symbols of God's promise to his people throughout the ages. That we will go through trials and afflictions, but God promises to be with us in them and to protect us from being overcome By them. He loves us with an ever present protective love. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think one of the challenges with this promise is that it can be so hard to believe it when we are in the midst of those trials and afflictions. Right? I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there. Scott Jose said, Uh, once said that the simple unhappy fact of the matter is that when we pass through the waters or the fires of life, those are precisely the times we find it the most difficult to locate that sense of God's presence. And the pain of our affliction can so easily blind us to the signs of his presence. So when we're in the midst of it, we don't necessarily feel or see or, or have this, this, this re- resounding reassurance that yes, God is with me in the midst of them. And this is why it's so important for us to keep growing in our faith when things are going well, because the more we cultivate a deep trust in God in the good seasons, the better we'll be able to cling to his promises in the difficult seasons. And then we'll be able to say with the psalmist that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, and those waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. When my, uh, my brother was in his 20s, he was going through a very, very dark season of his life. And, and one night in the middle of the night, he was, he was driving on, on a winding country road in the woods of northern Minnesota, and the, the darkness and the, de- the depression were pressing in on him, and, and it was compelling him just to, to, to give up on life and to drive his car off the road. It was one of the lo- lowest points of my brother's life. But what my brother didn't know was that while he was driving that night, in the middle of the night, my dad had awakened abruptly in the middle of the night with this overwhelming sense that something bad was about to happen to my brother. He didn't know what it was. didn't even know where he was. It's just that something bad is about to happen. And so he got up out of bed in the middle of the night and went to his car and just started driving. He didn't know where he was, but somehow by God's providence, he ended up on the same road. And just as my brother was round, uh, coming around a corner about ready to run his car off the road, he saw my dad's headlights come around the corner piercing the night, and those headlights jolted him out of his, his darkness and his depression and kept him on the road. And at such a dark time of his life, this was a profound reminder of God's ever-present and protective love, that God would go to such lengths to arrange that kind of intervention to keep him safe. And of course, no one captured this facet of God's love better than the apostle Paul, who said, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall shall trouble, or hardship, or, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God loves us with an ever-present, protective love. And so we have seen from last week that God loves us with an undeserved love, and now this morning with an elective love and an ever-present, protective love. And then finally, the last facet of God's love that I see in these verses is that He loves us with a redemptive love. He says in verse 1, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. And the word redeemed is a translation of the Hebrew word ga'al. The basic meaning of the word is release by means of payment. And the payment or the the purchase price for release from bondage is often called a ransom. And so when God says that he has redeemed his people, it means in the technical sense that they were in a state of bondage and he purchased their release by paying the ransom. The ransom, the, the price paid or demanded to release a captured person or people. Well, how did God do that? And, and, and again, confining ourselves to this text, how, how do we see that in, in these verses? What did God give as a ransom? What was the price that, that God paid to release his people? Well, we find an answer in verses 3 and 4. And, and again, you got to remember the context of Isaiah 43 with, with the people of Judah in exile to Babylon because of their sin. And in that context, God says the price that he paid to release his people from bondage was nations. So, let me show it to you. So, he says in verses 3 and 4, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Now, from a historical standpoint, there there was a a sense in which God literally gave these nations as a ransom for his people. God raised up the Persian Empire to conquer Babylon. Babylon. And the Persian Empire released his people from exile. But that same Persian Empire would conquer the nations of Egypt and Cush and Seba. And so in a very real sense, God gave these nations as a ransom, as a payment for the release of his people. And one of the things that I think we we see in that, we see in these words how much God values his people. And how much he loves them because he gives people in exchange for them. He gives whole nations as a ransom. And the message is that for God, no price is too high for the redemption of his chosen people. That he will go to any length to find a substitute for them. And when we come to the New Testament, we find just how much God was willing to pay just how much he was willing to give in exchange for his people. He paid the highest price imaginable for our redemption. Because he didn't give just Egypt as a ransom. He gave his one and only son. As Jesus himself said, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, Peter says, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, a a commodity so valuable that that it doesn't even make nations register on the scale. John Newton was born into a Christian home in London in 1725, and his mother died when he was seven. And he joined his father at sea when he was 11, and he worked for several years on slave ships in the slave trade, and the sailing life was really hard on Newton, and he plunged deep into the ways of profanity and and gambling and and drinking, and he he was long and far on the path that leads to destruction. At the age of 18, he was publicly flogged for attempting to desert the Royal Navy. At the age of 20... His shipmates left him in West Africa Africa because he was such a nuisance and such a troublemaker on the ship. And so they ditched him in West Africa where he became a servant of slaves, where he was mistreated and abused by a slave owner. But then at the age of 23, on a return voyage to England aboard a ship called the Greyhound, God broke into Newton's broken world and he turned his whole life around. And he was converted on that ship, and he went on to become, as many of us know, a prolific minister and hymn writer. And in one of his lesser-known hymns, he tells his own redemption story. He says, I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins, his blood had spilt, and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, my Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou may live. Oh, can it be upon a tree, my Savior died for me. My heart is filled. My soul is thrilled to think that he died for me. God gave his own son as our ransom. He loves us with a redemptive love. If you've been here a while, you know that I am always on the lookout for a good country song that somehow ties into the message of the text. I rarely find one, but it's Mother's Day, a message on love, and Jesus. There's a song called Jesus and Mama, and it just, I can't not go there. A song by Confederate Railroad, it says this, I made a wish upon a star that I could have a brand new car. I got tired of wishing, so I stole one. 17 and knew it all. My dreams were big, but my thoughts were small. So many roads, somehow I chose the wrong one. But Jesus and mama always loved me. Even when the devil took control, Jesus and mama always loved me. This I know. Well, the central message of the song is that even when he was at his worst, he was loved. And he knew. If he didn't know anything else in life, he knew that he was loved by his mama, and he was loved by Jesus. And that really, at least the love part of it, is the central message of Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7, that God says to his people who were in exile to Babylon, because of their sin, their God-denying, God-rejecting, God-rebelling, people-offending sin, God says to them, you are loved, And through faith in Christ, he says to us who are dead in our transgressions and sins, you are loved with an undeserved love and an elective love, an ever-present protective love and a redemptive love. May we know that we know that our identity is one who is loved by God in Christ. And may we live then as his beloved to his glory. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we continue to ponder the deep truths of your love, I pray, O Lord, that as we come before your throne in this space of silent prayer and response, that you would draw us deeper into your amazing love. O Lord, speak to us again in the quietness of our hearts in the stillness before your presence, the wonders of your elective love and the wonders of your ever-present protective love and the wonders of your redemptive love that would give your own Son as our ransom. Lord, hear our silent prayers of response. O Lord, we praise you this morning for your deep love for us. And I pray, O Lord, that that more and more, moment by moment, day by day, you remind us of our identity in Christ as those who are loved by you. May we live into that identity. And may we ponder more and more and know more and more deeply, O Lord, the wonderful truth of the cross. How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who caused his bitter death. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my Lord, should die for me?